Well, welcome to the next several weeks, probably eight to nine weeks, somewhere around the eight or nine, whatever it will be. What we're going to be doing is doing an overview study of just the first eight chapters of Romans. You remember several years ago we went through an extensive study of Romans in the celebration time. And as I was just praying about this, whatever, it just felt that the Holy Spirit said, look, I want you to go back and take another look at the first eight chapters of Romans, not because we've not studied it before, not because the material wasn't covered sufficiently or whatever, but what happens is this. There are two ways, or maybe more than two obvious ways of studying the Word or studying anything. And we can study it macro, meaning an overview and just take the big chunks of it, or we can study it micro, the minutiae, little details, verse by verse, and go through it like that. The macro presentation will give us an outline, probably gone through in several weeks. The micro will be much more the details of all the how this fits, where that is, what this verse means, and so on. And it would take weeks upon weeks upon weeks. Both are valid. Both are valid. Because I've heard criticism yesterday, just as a matter of fact, heard criticism from someone as to the way we teach the Word. Well, both of these are valid. And then there are other valid ways of teaching it. Uh, but we do it this way because in a context like this, the difficulty of getting you to do homework and responding and talking, whatever, that's not generally the context of a Sunday morning, although then that would be another valid way of teaching the Word. And so we merely do what we feel the Lord gives us to do within the context of the time that He gives us on Sunday morning. So that's what we're going to be doing. Why the first eight chapters? Because in the first eight chapters, Paul lays the foundations of what the gospel is. Remember, Paul is writing to a church, the church in Rome. Paul is in Corinth right now. He's wintering for these three months in Corinth. He's desiring and intending to go to Rome. And, uh, he, and rather than just going there and being there among the people, he's never been to the church. He's not taught the church. He's not been a part of anything of that church other than some of the converts. So he desires, look, before I come, I want to just give you an overview, a foundation of what the gospel is, of what its impact is, how it is to work out. So when I get there, we have a better context doctrinally of discussing and sharing with one another. And I want to share with you, he says, and I want you to share with me. So both of us, us and you, church at Rome, can begin to be blessed in a greater way by God. And so especially in the first eight chapters, he lays out what the gospel is. And then in chapter 9, 10, and 11, he talked about the sovereignty of God. And then in chapters 12, 13, 16, all, all the way through 16, he talks about the application of the gospel. So that's basically the three, if you would, divisions of how Romans is set up. First eight chapters, the gospel presentation. Chapter 9, 10, 11, the sovereignty or the vindication of God through the gospel. And then chapters 12 to 16, the application of the gospel. How it is to be worked out. Why is this significant? Because when we are challenged by Satan, by the world, by personal sin, temptation, by the difficulties that come against us, we need to know this word so well, not only in individual verses, but in large clusters, 
So when the word, so when the enemy of our soul comes against us, we can know, wait a minute, that's not what Romans 1 through 8 teaches me. Wait a minute, I've remembered in Romans 12 through 16 this and that. Wait a minute, God's sovereignty and God's elective purpose is not bad, it's good. Because I remember in Romans 9 through 11, this is what I learned. Or in Ephesians, or in Genesis, or in Nehemiah, or in Deuteronomy, or in Hebrews, or any place. We need to have a much greater grasp and an overview of what this great Word of God is. Otherwise, we are being eaten alive by the enemy. Now you might say, well, why is he so impacted by this because I see not only in my own life but in the life of this church great and major weaknesses primarily one of the primary reasons is a great vast lack of knowledge of the basics of the word of God you know if we were to give a test just general test to everybody in this church and just give the you know what what's this book about what's this book about and what are the major issues most of us would fail it And yet we don't want our children to fail mathematics and English and history, do we? So thank you for being here. Thank you for being students of the Word. Thank you for having a zeal for God. And thank you for hanging on as we go through this at a pace that I don't want to go through it this way. But I think it's instructive to get these large pieces of doctrine under our belt. So the Lord can use them. And so when we go back and study the particulars of the gospel, we have a frame in which to study it. We know the general layout. And so then we know how everything is connected and how it will flow. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Father, that I, the rest of us in this church, Father, would be so more studious learning, memorizing, understanding, living out your word. Father, what else do we have other than your word by the Spirit? This is how we know you. This is how we relate to you. This is how you come to us. This is our life. Christ in us, the word of God living, living in us, vibrant in us. So, Father, Thank you for these who have come. Father, we ask for increase in this area. And Father, we ask for the power of your word to totally renovate us, rejuvenate us in ways that we need and that we're not even aware of. So Father, as we heard prayed this morning, Father, through your word, cause us to be extraordinary, unusual people where people can see us and be amazed that we ordinary people have been with the Lord Jesus. Knowing that, your spirit uses that to convict and bring into heaven others and mature us. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why, why the fundamentals? Well, I think it should be obvious. Why the fundamentals? It's just like your child coming home and saying, well, what happened in school today? Ah, we just did mathematics, uh, the timetables and, and the addition tables, and I slept through the whole thing because I don't need that. How many of you would be okay with your child not worrying about the fundamentals? None of you. And how many of us regularly know that with our children, 
we had to get them to repeat and remind themselves and be refreshed in the fundamentals. Well, how many of us have to regularly be energized in the fundamentals? Yes. So it's the same with the faith. It's the same with the Word of God. What we're going to do is to outline the first eight chapters. I think it's in your notes thusly. The purpose of the letter. Remember, Paul has not been to this church, so he's going to lay it out in a different way than he would Ephesians or Colossians. Because you're not going to see the same emphases in these other letters. Why? Because Paul was involved with these other folks, having taught them and been among them and whatever. So he's already laid a foundation in these other churches, which he has not in Rome. So therefore, we're going to see a different approach in Romans than we do in other letters. So the purpose of the letter, the first 17 verses of chapter 1. Secondly, the problem, there's a problem in mankind. Paul begins to elucidate the problem in verse 1, verse 18, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, and he concludes it in chapter 3, verse 20. Then he starts talking about the solution. The solution begins in chapter 3, verse 21, and goes all the way through chapter 4, all the way to the end of chapter 4. That's verse 25 of chapter 4. And then he talks about this great and grand result of what the gospel will do in our lives, and that's chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. And we'll see that chapters 6 and 7 are kind of parenthetical in a way, but still needed and significant in the, uh, in the flow of the gospel. Because as Paul teaches the gospel, two questions arise, and we'll see those in chapter 6 and chapter 7, and which says to us, every time we uh, present the gospel, if we're doing it biblically, if we're doing it the right way, these two kinds of questions should arise from others when we share the gospel. So when we get to chapter 6 and chapter 7, hopefully the instruction partly will be to us, are we getting these two objections? Well, if this, then that. Well, if you say that, then that. And that's what's happening in chapter 6, and that's what's happening in chapter 7. And so as we present the gospel, somebody should object you know, there should be objection to this. And so Paul takes care of those two objections in those two chapters. So as we begin to study Romans, I want to make sure we don't do it typically how we do things, just because we're human beings. I'm not picking on you. We're human beings. We typically do this. We come to a Roman study or whatever it would be, and we basically study it in some kind of an isolation from everything else, as if this is the context of the whole Bible. So let's remember Romans within the context of God's great work of redemption, beginning where? In Genesis chapter 1, all the way through Revelation. Let's study Romans as a part of the total work of God. And let's look at Romans and consider and remember and receive from this doctrine of the gospel what God is doing within the total context of His Word. Not just doing something to save me, but a much greater and grander work here. So as we prepare to study Romans 1 through 8, let's study it, remembering God's purpose and plan in Genesis 1 through 3. And so some of those of you, or maybe all of those of you, if you did attend those classes, this is going to be a little easier for you than if you did not attend. What is that? What is this grand purpose of God that we should see Romans as a part of the continuing outwork of what God began in Genesis? Don't study Romans 
neglecting to remember the context of the whole purpose of God. That man was created to be God's agent. Remember, God's agent on earth. To carry out his mandates. Remember the mandates of God. Genesis chapter 1, 28 and chapter 2, 15. Those mandates. So that the earth would become God's Eden temple, Edenic temple, in which God and man would fellowship forever. So this is the context in which we want to see Romans. Because Adam's sin, you remember in Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. And so God's grand purpose as he had planned it in Adam, in the first Adam, failed, if you would, or at least was forfeited for a period of time. God being prepared for it, God knowing it, so God wasn't, oh, oh, look what happened. No, God is already in the mix of this. He's already prepared for this. He knows ahead of time when he creates Adam this is going to happen because he has a plan that is even greater than Adam to show us what he would do in Adam. Man fails and even how much greater his plan would be to bring us to a place of even greater than what Adam would have had had he obeyed God. So, but Adam sinned. And so when Adam sinned, this necessitated the recreation since the original became corrupted by sin. Adam's sin necessitated the activity of the gospel. Adam's sin necessitated the activity of the gospel. That gospel was in God already in his heart okay it was already there but it wasn't functional in the same way that it became functional after genesis 3 6 after genesis 3 6 then man needed the gospel before genesis 3 6 the man doesn't need the gospel the gospel of god's mercy and of god's rescuing forgiving power before genesis 3 6 man doesn't need that you understand this it's potential in God, ready to be given, but it's not given until it is necessary to be given. So the gospel is in God, in Christ, before the creation and before the fall. And then at Genesis 3, 6, the fall occurs. And then the immediately in Genesis 3, 7, 7, we see the effect of the gospel. What is the effect of the gospel? Immediately in the next verse... What is the effect of the gospel? Immediately, what do we see? God did not kill these two people as he said he would. You shall surely die. Remember in Genesis 2, 17, the day you eat of it, that day you dead. Well, God didn't kill them physically, although spiritually. And so immediately we begin to see the grace of God, the mercy and the love and the compassion of God coming in for mankind. In the next verse, Adam sins. The next verse, we see the beginning activity of the gospel. So remember, let's not see the gospel with Jesus being born. Obviously, he is himself the gospel. But the gospel begins when? The moment Adam, he needs the gospel. Remember Bugs Bunny? Okay. So Romans is the explanation of how and why God uses the gospel to recreate rather than to destroy. Therefore, what we want to do is to be careful to look for evidences of God's recreational work. His new covenant new creational bringing in the kingdom of God bringing about the the fruition of what he planned in Genesis we want to see evidences of that happening 
in every word that we read in the Bible, but specifically in Romans. So when we look at the gospel in Romans, we want to see this gospel is God's activity of bringing about what he promised in Genesis chapter 3. And we see it outworking in Romans, in 1 Peter, in Ephesians, in Matthew, in Mark. We see it working out to its fruition through the coming of Christ. So let's talk about the purpose. And uh, let's go through this. I didn't think it would take me that long to go through this. I'm thinking, I'm looking at these notes. I said, well, that's about a two-minute thing, and this is going to be about a three-minute thing, and whatever. And so the purpose. What is the purpose of Paul's writing? The gospel substantiated and defined. And again, you may understand a little differently. These are just, this is just what I felt the Lord give me. It doesn't mean that there's nothing more to say or less to say or whatever. It's just how God has given it to me. So the purpose. Let's read Genesis, um, from Romans 1, 1 to 17. We're going to read it in three different sections because I think we can see three different issues here in these. And I'm going to go through it quickly if you will forgive me for that. Section 1, verses 1 to 17. It's Paul's way yet. Is Paul's what? Where yet? Now they say salutation, but you know, theologians don't know much. When a New Orleanian reads salutation, what is that? Is that, did you put some um, uh, dressing on that salutation? Now, you know, whatever. I don't know what a salutation So Romans 1 through 7 is Paul's where yet. Does everybody understand that now? Yeah, now I got it. Oh, I know what that is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's Paul's what's happening. It's, it, that's what it is. Okay. First of all, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus rather, called to be an apostle. Just follow along in your notes in Romans chapter 1. Hopefully you have a Bible, hopefully it's open, and hopefully you'll follow along with us. So Paul begins, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Now remember, we're going to skip 90% of everything in here. So don't be upset if I don't explicate this word or that word or whatever. We're just going to go boop, 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 through this, hopefully hitting the salient issues that I feel the Holy Spirit wants us to have. Paul was called and commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus. When did that happen? On the Damascus Road. What changed Paul's life was the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that's significant. Because we're going to see that the entire basis, the entire power, the entire effect, the entire everything of the gospel is based upon the result of and a function of one activity primarily. After Jesus dies, there is no hope at all for recreational activity until he is raised from the dead. So am I separating these two, death and resurrection? No. I'm simply saying that we need to see the resurrection, the death of Jesus rather, as God putting to death the old creation. And had Jesus remained in the grave, everything of the old creation, including us, would have died and gone to hell. But it comes alive, and God begins to recreate, as he promised, reconstruct, beginning the process of the new creation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so resurrection is the power of God, as we'll see, 
in performing his recreation activity. It is the power. In fact, if you look at the New Testament, beginning in Acts all the way through to Revelation, except for Philemon, except for Philemon, resurrection is the work of God that these apostles allude to over and over again as the necessary work and the essential work of God in his completing and bringing about the beginning of the fulfillment of his work consummated in Revelation 21 and 22. Okay? So we want to see that. The death of Jesus is the issue in the Gospels. That is a completed work. Now as a result of the death we move into the resurrection power from Acts all the way through to Revelation. Certainly the death of Jesus is obviously punctuated through the letters but is given only to reference the resurrection. Then the death is given to give the reason for and the result of that death is the resurrection. Do we get that? Do you see how that works in the Gospels? and in the letters, and in Revelation, and in Acts. So everything that Paul writes, everything about his life, is now punctuated and is immersed in, and, and, and the result of him, oh, I've seen a risen man. I've seen Jesus. I have been impacted by the power of the resurrection. Oh, and he's never the same again. He was born again. The light went off, if you would. And there's so much to talk about, but i got to get away from that. Uh, let's, no, don't do that. Don't do that. This experience of seeing the risen Jesus define and dominated his life, his ministry, and his writing. So every time you read Paul, let me encourage you to read Paul within the context of Acts chapter 9, the first nine verses. Let me encourage you, when you read Paul, read him within the context of Acts chapter 9, 1 through 9. Why? Because it makes that road experience bigger than what we sometimes think it is. Oh yeah, Paul did that, and then we move along to other things. No, this is the work of God that started the whole work of the Holy Spirit into the Gentile world. Do we get that? Do we see that? Can we begin to see the Bible again? Bigger than what we have seen it, and more grand and glorious than ever before. Hmm. I'm set apart for the gospel. Remember that. I'm not going to read these verses from Acts 26, but Jesus specifically says, I am setting you apart for the work that I have for you. And this work is you're going to suffer, and you're going to bring the gospel, and you're going to be used to open hearts and open eyes so that they will be saved. This is Paul's, uh, God's purpose in saving Paul, to use him, commission him, anoint and appoint him, and call him to be an apostle with power so that the recreational activity, the application of Jesus as the firstborn from the dead, as 1 Peter 3 says, in recreating, in fulfilling his original Adamic purpose in Genesis 1-2. Now it is being fulfilled as there is a risen man upon the earth, the first man from the dead, the, now the new Adam. And in this new Adam, now God's creational activity will be 
succeeding, if you would, or fulfilled in a greater way than it was intended, or rather it, it happened in Genesis 1-2. to And now Paul is being commissioned to be taking the word of this new created man, this man from the dead, and taking that word into the world so that in this gospel, God's people may be redeemed Fully fulfilling the multiplying and the filling the earth and you know the priests and so on you remember all the things we talked about that's what's happening here when Paul is commissioned and that's what we're a product of today he says the gospel set apart for the gospel of God do we see that sometimes we think it's the gospel for me it's the gospel about me you know, we talk about the gospel, and immediately when we start talking about the gospel, we talk about its effect on us. Well, I understand that, because that's what we know. But the gospel is not primarily ours. It's whose? Of God. It is intended for Him to do something for, from, and about Himself in us as the means. And so we are the recipients of something and the greatest work something from, for, and about God. So Paul immediately sets forth the context of the gospel. It's from God, it's for God, and it's about God. God being the central person and actor, if you would, and the source and the beneficiary of the gospel. Who benefits from the gospel? God does, ultimately and primarily, as he gives us saving grace through the gospel. Can you get that? This gospel is primarily for, from, and about God. Not about us, for us, and from us. We benefit. Anybody benefits from the gospel in here? Raise your hand if you've ever. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you, Jesus. But we're not the primary beneficiaries. We're the secondary. He, his glory, his joy is primary in the gospel. If we begin to get this and remember this, it allows us to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil more effectively and more consistently and allows God's work through a, as we're being humbled and matured and empowered allows God's work to permeate us and be much more effective in us than ever before. In verses 2 to 3, Paul tells us two fundamental truths about the gospel. It's been promised, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Old Holy Scripture. Where was it first promised? What is the first verbal promise of the gospel? Do I have it in your notes? Ah! Ah, I put it in your notes and I didn't want you to have the answer there. I want you to remember. Where is the first verbal promise of the gospel? The seed of the woman. Talking about the seed, he's going to do what? The seed is going to do what? He is going to crush your head, Satan. Remember Colossians 2.15? Remember 1 Samuel 16? I mean, uh, yeah, 16. No. He's going to crush your head. So it's promise. This is the promised gospel. Secondly, the gospel began to be promised, or already has that, in 3.15, and was reiterated and expanded throughout the entire Old Testament. Secondly, the gospel is specifically about God's Son. It's concerning His Son. The gospel is contained, lived out, given by a man. Do you see that same issue in this is what God wanted Adam to be? He wanted Adam to be this, but Adam failed. So all that Adam was to be, Christ is. 
And so Jesus doesn't come to us with a gospel. He comes to us as the gospel. As the gospel. What does that mean? It means that he comes to us showing that the gospel is rising man out of his sin and reconstituting him before God as forgiven and eternally accepted and as righteous. He comes to us as the gospel. So certainly Jesus gives us the gospel. I understand that. And his words are the gospel. But bigger than that, Jesus is the living reality of the gospel as a risen man. This is the effect that God desires and intends to do through the gospel, that he would have a people who have been raised and delivered, who have come out of the exodus, remember, of Egypt into the new land, have come out of the bondage, if you would, of Babylon back to the land. This is a recreational thing, having delivered us, Colossians 1.13, from the kingdom of darkness and delivered us into or transplanted us and transferred us into the kingdom of God's dear son, his beloved Agapitos, his son. So Jesus is the gospel. And everything about him is the gospel. And everything he says is the gospel. And everything he does, what, is the gospel. Okay? It's concerning his son. 3 to 4, 3b to 4, Paul validates his claim. Who is this Jesus? He validates it by going back to the scriptures. He says he was descended from David according to the flesh. And was, why? What is that important? Remember the promise. Remember the promise. He'd be the seed of the woman. And then the promise to Abraham, your seed. And the promise to Judah, Shiloh, you know, the scepter shall not pass from you until Shiloh comes and until he who's right it is. The promise, the promise, the promise. And then to David, remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this, this promise of a Davidic king, this king who will be on the throne forever. This is a promise. This is the man who fulfills that great promise, those promises. And he was declared to be the son of God, how? In power, in power, dunimas. It's the same word, Acts 1-8, dunimas. It's the same word, in power, according to the spirit of holiness. How, how, how? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So two things we learn in this verse. First, Jesus is proven to be God's son through his ancestry. Remember the promise to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 to 14. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed or your offspring after you. Remember the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham. Remember the seed, the seed, the seed, the promise. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming after you. Who This seed shall be from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for me, for my name. What, what is the name of that house? We call it what? The church. Read Ephesians 1 through 3. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, Roman, uh, Matthew 28, remember 18. And I will be to him a father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, remember in Matthew chapter 3 and Luke 3. And he shall be to me a son. Remember that promise. So Jesus is proven to be God's son through his ancestry. Remember the ancestry, the first 17 verses of Matthew. It's there for a reason to show us that Jesus is directly in the Davidic line. 
And secondly, he's proven to be God's son through the greatest work of all, through the resurrection. This Psalm 16, verse 10, the promise will be this, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, you know, to the, utter, to the depths, to, to the grave, if you would. Or let your holy one see or experience corruption. This one is going to die, but God is going to raise him up. And the resurrection is the work of God bringing forth the first man of the new creation, the newly created and constituted man. And in that man, through his gospel, God's people will be reconstituted, having had the old Adamic corruption and curse and sin, slavery, put away in the cross in his death so that in his resurrection, the same life that the Son of God now experiences forever, the same life now that the Son of God experiences forever as a man, we will experience forever with him. Amen? Yes! Yes. You see what Paul is doing in Romans. He's writing this, but he's gathering up all that God has said and all that God has done in the Old Testament. He's not just writing some words down. He is gathering up all that he understands and knows of the Old Testament. Where did he get the revelation? He got it from Jesus. In Je Remember Galatians 1, 16 and 17. I didn't get this from men, but I got it from Jesus. Remember we see that in, in 2 Corinthians 12. The third heaven, the paradise, he received great Remember, revelations, therefore a thorn in the flesh. Remember to keep him up. He got this from Jesus. His understanding was from Jesus. The same in Luke 24 when Jesus is telling these two disciples on the road to Damascus what's going on. And he began from where? From the beginning when Moses and all the prophets and the Psalms, you know, and he declared, all of this is about me. Do you remember this? Yes. That's what we're seeing here. Isn't this exciting? I don't know for you, but for me, I love it. This is more important than anything else in all the world. I may forget a lot of stuff. I may be confused about a lot of things. And I don't know most things. But I want to know this. This is what I want to know. Because this is life. And this goes into eternity. All this other stuff <laughs> dies when I'm dead. So forgive me if I don't know a whole lot of stuff. Someone was talking about something the other day, and I had no idea what they were talking about. And then all that, I'll say it this way. I don't give a good hmm about the other stuff. This is what I am concerned. This, this word, this word. Otherwise, I have no life. I have no fellowship. I have no hope. I have no future. Paul, verse 5 to 7, he tells that the gospel is a transmission of God's grace. That produces, it's a, the gospel is a transmission of God's grace that produces the obedience of faith. It's too much to go into right now. I don't have the time. Remember that Adam's ability to fulfill God's mandates was based on his obedience. Remember Genesis chapter 2 verses 16 and, and 17. Of all the trees, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the Knowledge of good and evil. Don't do it. And so Adam was to merit or earn by his good works of obedience. He was to merit or earn eternal life. And he failed. 
And in his failure, God will send another man who, like Adam, begins without sin, but is maintained as a sinless person. And this man fulfills the obedience mandate of Adam. He does not eat of the fruit of sin. And because of that, this man wins in his obedience. He wins eternal life. Remember that? The word says in Psalm 2, he will inherit because of his obedience. And he not only inherits for himself as a man eternal life and the kingdom of God and the rulership and the priesthood in this kingdom, but he doesn't not only do it for himself, but he does it for all his people. So all who belong to Christ and who are in Christ, God sees us as already having kept the fullness of his law. And now we walk in obedience of faith. We walk within the context of the power and the presence and the work and the ministry and the correction and the leading and the love and whatever else of the Holy Spirit as we are joining God and walking with God in an obedient way. Now the law becomes to us not a tutor causing us to be condemned, but as God's guide by the Spirit to show us what's going on and how we're doing and how we should do. Amen? The obedience of faith. So the gospel has as its heart obedience. Don't you ever think that grace leaves out obedience. It's a bad word. Grace is given to us on the basis of the obedience of the Son of God. And if you don't see that, look at Philippians 2. Remember, he humbled himself to death. Even what? Death on the cross. Therefore, remember what Ephesians then, um, Philippians 2, 8, uh, 9 and 10, 11 say, Therefore God has given him a name which is what? Above every name. That hath the name of Jesus. Who is Jesus? This man who by the power of God has obeyed fully and completely and comprehensively all of God's will. Has given him a name above every name. That hath the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in the heavens and the earth and under and everything every what tongue should confess that what Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father this is what God had intended in Genesis this is what Jesus fulfills and this is what he's working out of us in us rather through the gospel Section 2, 815, I'm just going to talk, it's just Paul expresses his gratitude and his desire to visit them. Section 3, 16 to 17. See, that was a big jump now, aren't you? You see, you didn't think I could do that, did you? Section 3, 16 to 17, the power and definition of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's a dunamis, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. By the way, the Jews saw the whole world is divided into two camps, the people of God, the Jews, and the non-people of God. So the Greek is a, is a euphemistic term, not only re, re, relating to the ethnic Greek people, but all the rest of the Gentile nations, everybody else. And they consider them, of course, barbarians and polytheists and, and no good and unworthy, whatever. It's we, the Jews, who got it all and everybody else. So that's how they saw the world. And in fact, that's how God actually divides the world, his people and everybody else. For in the gospel, 
In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live, or the righteous shall live by faith. Now, when we come to these two verses, we hear the heartbeat of the gospel. The heartbeat of the gospel. Why? Because, you see, the gospel declares the righteousness of God through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I, I insist on this, that you see this. I insist that you see that the power of the resurrection of Jesus is the key to understanding the rest of the New Testament because it is the way that God applies His recreational, new creation work in our lives. And it is the key to understanding how we are not only saved, but maintained and secured for eternal life. So you will see resurrection alluded to and stated throughout, as I said, the entire New Testament except for Philemon. You will see this as the, if you would, key understanding. I hate to say that word key, but I, I suppose I don't have anything else to say. Why didn't God, you know, it, why didn't God destroy the creation when Adam sinned? Why? Because he's righteous. Because he's righteous. He's just. He keeps his word. He's faithful. He's not a liar. He doesn't equivocate. He doesn't change his mind. He's God. See, God is just and loving. And both of these, his justice and his love, which are clearly and dramatically demonstrated in the death and the resurrection of Christ. Now, how many of us, if we had been given a test and say, the gospel, the gospel, in it the blank of God has been revealed. How many of us would put the love of God? Come on, come on, I would. The mercy of God, the grace of God. Well, why does Paul do this differently? Because you see, Paul is getting at something more basic and more pervasive than just the mercy and love and grace of God, goodness of God. There's something more pervasive. Those are the attributes and the activities that come out of something more fundamental, if you would, about God, and it is his righteousness. Because God is righteous, therefore he is loving and good and merciful. But before he can apply goodness and mercy and love, he first must be just. And his justice must first be dealt with and satisfied. Because if his justice is not first satisfied, he will not pour out his love and mercy. So there must be first justice, because God is a just and righteous and holy and truthful God. And that must be dealt with first. We'll see that beginning next week. What's the result of that justice being abrogated and being broken by man? So we want to see the gospel as much larger than just love and mercy. Oh, love and mercy. Yes, love and mercy. I'm not putting it down. Sometimes people think, well, you're putting it down. No, I am trying to say that Paul is presenting the gospel in a larger context than he does in any other letter. Why? Because he has not laid the foundation in this church. And so he wants to see them that the whole gospel is about God's righteousness. Why is it so important? Why is the gospel important? Because the gospel is God's message and means of recovering and implementing his original purpose for man. Remember, how? By recreating man in his image. As the Holy Spirit applies the power of Jesus' resurrection to their hearts, causing them to be born of the Spirit to become God's redeemed people. 
The gospel tells sinful man how to be justified before a righteous and sovereign God. So because of the gospel, we are saved, we are sanctified, and we are secured by the gospel. By the activity and the reality of this risen man as he sends his spirit into our hearts to do this work. See, therefore, the greater our understanding and knowledge of the gospel is going to be the greater of all of its work in us. Why is the resurrection so important? Because it is the very dunimus of God in bringing about his new creation activity in us. Recreating us from fallen to redeemed people. First in the death of his son, putting to death the old creation, and then in the resurrection of his son, then in our resurrection. First the resurrection of Jesus, and then our resurrection, which you'll see in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 28. So in summary, we will see that Romans is Paul's exposition that God is recovering his creational purpose as the Holy Spirit applies the power of Jesus' resurrection to a dead and dying people through the proclamation of the gospel. Why? To give them Jesus' new life received by faith so that they can become his new creations. Amen. See you next week.